will and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We've been here uh, camped out in John 15 for a number of weeks already and uh, we're only about halfway through so uh, you can probably guess uh, that it's going to take us a while to get through just John 15 let alone the rest of the book of John. But uh, uh, this morning we're going to talk about friends of Jesus and uh, Friends are an important and wonderful part of life. It's always good to have a friend. Now, today is Mother's Day, and I dare say many have considered their mother a dear friend, as well as someone, uh, uh, as someone uh, not only who gave birth and cared for them, but they consider them a friend. And that's a wonderful thing to have uh, uh, someone consider their mother a friend. Sadly... We live in a world where there are moms who have cared for their own personal pleasures more than the children that they brought into this world. And that just seems to be the story around and more and more all the time. Uh, We, uh, my wife and I, have four adopted grandchildren, uh, four boys that were adopted by our daughter and her husband, and we have two more soon to be adopted. Uh, that adoption's almost uh, going to take place here in the next week or so. And they had mothers who were not willing to sacrifice personal pleasure for the good of their children. But thankfully, these children now have mothers who love them and care for them to the point of great sacrifice. And I'm sure many of you know of similar cases like this. But thank God for the friendship of our mothers. Now, someone gave some advice to some young people once, and they said this, two things will influence where you'll be in 10 years, the books you read and the friends you make. And then he added, choose them very carefully. And of course, that was long, that was said long before Facebook came into existence, uh, where you can be a friend, well, put that in quotes, a friend just about everything or anyone you, uh, you want. Uh, some people have a thousand friends and some time, and they've never met them face to face, but they have all these friends on, uh, on social media. Uh, but that's what it's called. But that's really not what we're talking about this morning. Uh, by far, the most important friend you could have would be the Lord Jesus. I don't, we have a number of hymns in our uh, hymnal or, or in, in, uh, that have been written over the years uh, that celebrate this wonderful truth. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's a wonderful old hymn. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Or I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. I found a friend who is all to me. His love is ever true. And then there's, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. I think we need to be careful sometimes in the way we speak about our friendship with the Lord Jesus. I think, uh, as someone said, it's, we need to be careful about being too chummy, calling Jesus our friend. Uh, he's not, not a, a good buddy. Uh, he's not just uh, someone that you have a flippant uh, friendship with. In the Bible, God and the Lord Jesus call certain ones their friends, 
But actually, you'll not find a human ever referring to God or Jesus as his friend or their friend. Uh, It's not a mutual reciprocal friendship. The Bible refers both to Abraham and Moses as friends of God. Uh, Jesus here in this chapter of John 15 calls the disciples his friends. But he is still their Lord and their teacher, their master and their Lord. And although at the Last Supper, the apostle John laid his head on Jesus' breast, and years later when John saw Jesus in his glory, uh, he fell at his feet as a dead man, as it says in Revelation chapter 1. So as we consider whether or not we are friends of Jesus, we need to maintain the kind of reverence that John had for the Lord. And the question I'd like us to think about and ask ourselves, would Jesus call me his friend? Would Jesus call you his friend this morning? And our text, I believe, reveals four characteristics of those who Jesus calls his friends. Now, uh, before we look at these characteristics, you need to know that Jesus is not automatically your friend or everyone's friend. You especially need to know this if you're inclined to think that you're his friend because you do, uh, uh, you're a good person. You're not a bad person. You've never murdered or uh, robbed a bank or done anything really, really, really bad. No, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And the Bible teaches that by nature we're all God's enemies. Because he is holy and we've all sinned. And the bad news is that you can't have a worse enemy than God. Because he always wins. Now, but the good news is that God sent Jesus to reconcile rebellious sinners like you and me to himself. And the self-righteous religious crowd scoffed that Jesus was a friend of sinners. But he gladly accepted that label, explaining that he didn't come to call the righteous. And in the context of that, he means self-righteous. But he came to call sinners to repentance. And so the first step to being called the friend of Jesus is to come to him as a helpless sinner, asking him to save you. And once you've done that, you can consider these characteristics of Jesus' word here in John chapter 15 and seek to grow in them. Now let's look at those four characteristics of those Jesus calls his friends. Number one, friends of Jesus love one another. Friends of Jesus love one another. And we saw, we talked about this last Sunday morning. Uh, As we noted uh, last time, we are to love one another just as he loved us. In in verse 12 and 13, it says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in verse 17, These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, if these commands sound vaguely familiar, it's because Jesus already said in John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, why would uh, Jesus repeat this command on the same night 
Uh, he repeated it because he was a master teacher. He knew that repetition is the key to learning. And that's what uh, anyone who's been a teacher has to realize, that you go over and over and over things if you want your students to learn something. And Jesus uh, uh, was doing that here. Learning something is not necessarily easy. It takes more than one hammer blow to get the nail uh, into the board. Some of you who are construction people, you know that. Uh, it takes more than just saying it once, uh, to learn to love one another. Now, during the Last Supper, the disciples got into an argument about which of them was the greatest. We're told in Luke 22. And while we uh, can sit as an armchair quarterback, so to speak, and say, well, what a pitiful squabble that was. The embarrassing truth is that many of our conflicts stem from the same self-centered motives. As James chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and ye cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. You see, the Lord knew our propensity toward selfishness. So during his final hours with his disciples, he's hammering on this command to love one another. He wanted them to remember this thing because love is not optional for those who follow the Lord Jesus. By the way, you may wonder why this is emphasized again this week. Well, it's precisely the reason I gave you. The Lord emphasized it as well over and over, and it takes more than one hammer strike to get something nailed down. But notice three things in this area of friends of Jesus love one another. First of all, Jesus' love for us is the supreme standard. And just as he stated when he gave his new commandment in John 13, 34, so Jesus repeats here, as I have loved you. Jesus' love for us is most vividly seen at the cross. At the cross, he's offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And we can define Jesus' love as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. The highest good for all people is that they would have their sins forgiven. They would receive eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once a person has come to know Christ, his highest good is that he be conformed to the image of Christ. And those goals should be our goals, our aims in our relationship with him. Now, because love is primarily a commitment, it's not a feeling, it can be commanded. Now, the Bible does command certain feelings. For example, he says, rejoice evermore in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Or in Philippians 4.6, he says, be careful for nothing or anxious. And love should not be devoid of feelings. It's a caring commitment. People should feel our genuine feelings of love for them. But even when we don't feel especially loving, we need to obey God by sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. I'm sure that the cross didn't feel good when Jesus was on the cross. Uh, that was not something that you would want to feel. But Jesus endured it because he focused on the future joy of having us with him in heaven for all of eternity. Here in verse 13, 
Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now some have said, to lay down your life for your enemies is greater than doing it for your friends. Well, Paul points out in Romans 5 uh, that this is in fact what Jesus did. He died for us while we were still his enemies. In another context, Jesus commanded that we are to love our enemies. But in this context, Jesus is speaking about a love among friends. And he will demonstrate his love for the disciples the next day on the cross. Now that's a high standard for love, our love for one another. Of course, we can never die as a substitute to save others from their sins, just as Jesus did. But he sets a standard for our love as laying down our lives for one another. Every once in a while, uh, I'll read a story about someone who literally sacrificed his life to save someone else. Uh, Maybe on the battlefield or rescue a drowning person or save someone inside a burning building. And while not giving their lives, or while not giving their lives, I've read about people who have donated kidneys, uh, a kidney for a perfect stranger. And often I've thought, well, would I be willing to do that? You know, you can sit around and speculate about whether you could do some of these heroic deeds if it was, if you were thrust into that situation. Uh, But the place we need to apply this is by confronting our own selfishness in our small daily matters. You know, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, men, do you love your wife? Do you love your wife as uh, Christ loved the church? You say, "Oh, oh, sure, I'd die for my wife. And uh, if some intruder came in and tried to kill her, I'd, I'd step in front and I'd, I'd try to save her. But how about do you die for uh, to self on a daily basis in serving her? Uh, do you turn off the TV and leave the computer and help her clean the kitchen and get the kids to bed? Well, done, done preaching, gone to meddling. But here we go. Do you give up your own pursuits because you delight to be with her? You see, sometimes we say, oh, yeah, I'd give my life. But then our everyday life isn't a demonstration of sacrifice, is it? So loving Jesus' love for us is the supreme standard. Here we have a standard to live by. Secondly, love, loving one another means abiding in Christ's love. You know, John 15 is all about abiding. In verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father hath loved us, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And Jesus applies abiding in his love to our relationship one another. Abiding in his love is the key to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And these, of course, are two great commandments that sum up the law and the prophets, according to Matthew 22, that we are to love God and love our neighbor. But the point here is that it's God's great love for us, as seen in giving his own son while we were yet his enemies. And that should motivate us to love others. We also note here in verse 17, Jesus repeats the command for us to love one another immediately after he repeated the concept that he saved us so that we would bear fruit. You see, these two are intertwined. 
And when we, he gave his new commandment back in John 13, Jesus said that others would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Here he ties our ability to bear fruit with his command that we love one another. You know, as people see the love between Christians, they are going to be drawn to the source of that love. And that is our Savior who gave himself for us on the cross. Sadly, churches have often failed in this matter. I've never read it, but years ago, I understand there was a book written by Leslie Flynn who uh, entitled his book, Great Church Fights. I bet that was interesting. And I'm sure that he had to choose his material selectively because there have been thousands of great church fights. But on a lesser scale, there have been tens of thousands of conflicts among believers over really petty matters. It's always grievous, and it's always a black eye for the name of Christ when believers don't judge their selfishness and work through the conflicts out of obedience to Christ's command to love one another. And no doubt, a great many volumes could be written if we entitled a book, Great Family Fights. Of course, that's not your family, but, you know, many fight, um, families don't get along very well, do they? But you say... Well, but you don't know that person I have to deal with. You don't know the person uh, that I have to love. Well, that leads us to the third thing here. We're commanded to love imperfect sinners. We're commanded to love imperfect sinners. You know, it's interesting. I think it's instructive that Jesus did not pick a consistent, unified group for his apostolic uh, group of men here. You know, most glaringly, he picked Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, the zealots were a radical political party whose main objective was getting Roman rule out of the Holy Land. And they viewed tax collectors as despicable traitors who would sell their souls to Rome. Now, they took advantage of their fellow Jews by milking them for excessive taxes that they would pocket And I don't know whether Jesus picked Matthew first or Simon the Zealot first, but I think it's kind of humorous to think of of what the one who was already the apostle might have thought when Jesus picked the other one. What was he thinking? And then Jesus says, you know what you need to do, men? Love one another. He picks people that... Uh, are not necessarily real compatible in their in their life or their lifestyle or their personality, and he does that. Uh, you know, he picks people uh, for his church that I have never would have picked, and he commands me and he commands you to love them. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to like them, <laughs> but you have to say to yourself. Uh, and you say no to your selfishness. Uh, you have to help beca- uh, them become what the Lord wants them to be. You know, friends of Jesus love one another just as he loved us. And so that's his this first characteristic here. Friends of Jesus love one another. Let's go on to verse 14. Friends of Jesus obey his commandments. Look at verse 14. It says, Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Now this is a repeat of the thought back in John 15 verse 10. He doesn't mean that obedience makes you Jesus' friend as if it's earned. 
Rather, it describes what Jesus' friends do. What do they do? They obey Him. He isn't friends with anyone who lives in disobedience or has a self-will. As we saw in John 14, the Lord will disclose Himself to and make His home with those who keep His commandments. On one occasion, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived to see him at a time when people would crowded into the house to listen to him. And when someone told Jesus that the, his mother and brothers were outside looking for him, what does he say? He gives an answer that might have jolted them, perhaps, in Mark four, uh, chapter 3. He says, who is my mother and my brethren? And then looking around at those who were listening receptively to his teaching, Jesus continued to shock them by the answer to his own question. Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus' true friends are those who obey him. Do you qualify with that? Thirdly, there's a third characteristic. Friends of Jesus understand truth. Friends of Jesus understand the truths that he made known to us from the Father. In verse 15 here, Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Even though Jesus here elevates the disciples from being slaves to being friends, the master-slave relationship is not done away with. Jesus, a few sentences later here in verse 20, implies that he is the master and they are his slaves. Uh, Paul, uh, James, and Peter later would delight to call themselves servants of Jesus Christ. And the word servant there is bondservant or literally a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. A master could command a slave. He could say, you know, go fix dinner for 50 guests tomorrow. And he didn't need to explain why he was having so many people for dinner. But a master who viewed himself as a friend to his slave would have explained the situation behind such a large dinner party. Jesus' point here in our text is that he has openly shared with the disciples the things that he had heard from the Father. And by all things here, he means all things necessary for them to know at this point in their lives. Later, he will tell them he has many more things to tell them, but they could not bear them in chapter 16. But after the resurrection, he'll open their minds to understand the scriptures in ways they could not understand them before. Now, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us today. Thank God for that. And we have the Spirit-inspired Word of God to reveal to us all that we need to know for life and godliness and if we know Christ, you know the things that even most, most brilliant scientists and philosophers in this world don't even understand. You know the living and true God who spoke the universe into existence. You know his plan for history. You know how to have your sins forgiven. You know how, why he put you on this planet in the first place. You know that you will spend eternity with him in glory. You know how he wants you to conduct yourself in all of life's difficult situations. All of this and more is revealed to us in God's holy inspired word. 
And so friends of Jesus love one another just as he loved us. And then friends of Jesus obey his commandments. Friends of Jesus understand the truths that he's made known to us from the Father. And then finally, friends of Jesus are chosen to bear fruit. Friends of Jesus are chosen to bear fruit. Verse 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I want you to notice three things about this aspect of uh, being chosen to bear fruit. Number one, friends of Jesus are chosen by him. Probably Jesus' primary reference here to choosing these men is as he's choosing them as his apostles. He's not choosing them uh, concerning their election to salvation. Often when I look uh, uh, at the commentators uh, concerning this passage, often commentators will go into some long explanation of the doctrine of election to salvation, and they'll attempt to use this verse to explain how some are chosen to salvation and some were not chosen. Now, there is a doctrine of election given to us in God's Word, but not as the Calvinist or the Reformed theologians would have us to believe. So because this verse is so often used as a proof text for election to salvation, allow me to briefly give you some valuable information about this doctrine of election and what it refers to, even though it's not what this verse is pointing to. The term elect refers to at least four things. Number one, it can refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can examine the scriptures. We won't take time to read all the scriptures here. But in 1 Peter 2.6, it refers to Jesus Christ. It also refers to angels which did not rebel with Satan in 1 Timothy 5.21. It refers to God's election of the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9. You see, God called Abraham, and then he chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, and Jacob instead of Esau. There's, uh, there's a choosing that takes place here. An election. Those who receive God's salvation, also number four, those who receive God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And there are multiple passages of Scripture uh, here, too many for me to list at this time. It's also known as predestination or foreordination. Now, there are some lessons, I think, about election for salvation. Number one, election is based on God's foreknowledge. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Election means God planned man's salvation before creation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. It means God, by his foreknowledge, was predestinate, has predestinated the believer to a glorious future. And this is important. Get this. It is not who is predestinated. It is what we are predestinated to. God predetermined what we would be predestinated to. He predetermined if we chose to come to Christ, this is what's going to happen. And so it's not who is predestinated, but what. Election does not mean God arbitrarily chooses who will be saved and who will not be. He has revealed that he wants all men to be saved, does he not? He is not willing that any should perish. So this is not here a reference in John 15 to being chosen for salvation. 
Many people use this verse for that. But rather, this is a verse that's telling his disciples they did not choose him to be their teacher or to guide them, but he chose them to be apostles and to do a special work when he left them. He called them to be, as one commentator put it, witnesses and depositories of the truth. And he is it was customary among the Jews for every person to choose his own teacher. But that's not what happened here. This teacher chose his apostles, his disciples. And so that's why he says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Now, what did he choose them for? Well, secondly, friends of Jesus are chosen to bear fruit. Jesus was leaving them, and he had a work for them to do in his absence. Fruit. And that word here means, most likely, refers to converts who come to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, fruit can certainly have reference to many other things in our Christian lives as we uh, uh, are going through the process of sanctification and being more like Christ. But here I think the primary uh, reference is to converts. They will remain because God promises to keep them. And the main reason that God chose to save you and me is that we would help bring others to know the Savior. That's God's plan. For you and me to bring others to the Lord. As Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul suffered that, uh, so that God's elect would hear the gospel and be saved. And that should be our aim as well. Now, the question is this, how many souls did you bring to Christ this past week? Boy, that's a challenging question, isn't it? How many souls did you bring to Christ this past week? You say, well, pastor, I'm sorry to say none. Then let me ask you this. Did you pray for someone to be saved? Did you pray for someone to be saved? Did you pray for the opportunity to witness to someone and tell them the good news of the gospel? See, that's what we've been chosen to do. We've been chosen here to bear fruit. That leads us to the third aspect here, and that is friends of Jesus bear fruit that remains. In the Greek text, there are two parallel clauses here. The first shows why God chose and appointed the disciples, and the second shows how that purpose would be fulfilled. We could paraphrase it this way, I choose and appoint I chose and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, abiding fruit, which you will do by asking the Father in my name. Now, while it's good to receive training, I think training is good. I'm not against education. I hope we're learning something this morning. Training is good. It's good to receive it, but we also need to keep in mind that making converts who go on for Christ is not dependent on my method or my using a sales technique to close the deal. And some churches and some schools, they teach that. you got to close the deal. It's most like, uh, more like a, a sales technique. 
Only God can produce that convert. I can't save anybody. Only God can convert those who will abide. And he does it through a supernatural new birth. He has given life to the spiritually dead. And so prayer to God given necessity behind evangelism. Before you talk to a person about God, or, uh, make sure you talk to God about that person. Are you praying for those opportunities? And if you haven't done so, make a list. Make a list of people you come across in your daily life who don't know Christ and begin to pray and pray fervently for their salvation. Understand that you uh, may be the means that God uses to bring them to salvation. Be always alert for those opportunities to turn a conversation to eternal uh, issues and then be equipped By knowing some verses, knowing the verses, knowing the gospel, being able to explain the gospel clearly. But prayer is the foundation for bearing fruit that remains. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Ask. Ask. You want to bear fruit? Ask Him. And so, this morning, would Jesus call you His friend? He would if you're loving others, especially those in your home and those here in our church. Uh, He would if you're seeking to obey His commandments. He would if you're growing to understand the truths revealed by the Holy Spirit in God's Word. And He would if you know that He chose you to bear fruit that remains. And you're seeking to bear that fruit through prayer. And if you wonder, well, how do I know if God has chosen me? Well, the answer is, have you believed in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? If you have, are you bearing fruit for his honor and his glory? If you haven't, I wonder this morning if you wouldn't consider what Jesus did for you by dying on the cross to pay for your sin penalty and give you the promise of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank